Lord, please help me to make this passage of Scripture clear, clear in its context, clear in its intent, and practical for all of us here by the power of your Spirit, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. This passage of Scripture underscores several things. First of all, we have to get out of our minds the manger scene picture. I've harped on this for four years. The wise men did not come the night that Jesus was born. And they did not flee to Egypt the night that Jesus was born. That's important to remember. How do we know this? Well, we know that this is 40 days after Jesus has been born. And we know that because of the book of Leviticus, that for a male child, there would be a period of 40 days before the woman could appear in the presence of the Lord. For a female child, it was 80 days. So here they are. Since the day of the birth of Jesus, 40 days have passed. Jesus has been circumcised on the eighth day, and now he's brought into the temple of the Lord to be dedicated. This is really important. And while we, we're in that passage of Scripture in Luke, you might want to look right across the page at verse 39, page 1592. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. This is important. It's important to understand that the wise men did not come to Bethlehem. The wise men, we don't know where they came, but it certainly was not the night that Jesus was born. And so they've come, the wise men have come, at some point after this. And if we look at the Gospel of Matthew in a little bit, we see, as we've been looking at uh, this Christmas season, that it's possible that it has been two years since the birth of Christ, uh, since, uh, at the time the wise men come. That's why Herod, though I'm sure he took no chances, and therefore it was less than two years ago that Jesus had been born, that's why when he ascertained when they'd seen the star, uh, he, he, he wanted to send the wise men to find out where the, Jesus was. And so that's important to keep in our mind. And what's going on here is this. Simeon, is he an old man? A lot of people think he's a real old man. There's one real old person here, and that is Anna. Look at verse 36, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Now, if you notice this, uh, there's a footnote there, B, or widow for 84 years. So if she'd been a widow for 84 years and if she'd lived with her husband for seven years and if she was 12 or 13 when she got married, which was the ripe age for marriage, then she is very old. So 
it's possible that she'd been a widow for 84 years serving the Lord. But is there anything regarding Simeon that tells us he's old? No, only one thing. And we read into it more than we may be uh, thinking about. Uh, look at verse 29, Luke 2, 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. And if you turn the page back, you see in verse 26 of Luke, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Does that mean he's an old man? No, it just means this. The purpose of his life was to witness the coming of the Messiah. He could have been very young. He could have been less than middle age. What's middle age? 35? I don't know. Don't say that, Bob. Middle age ought to be 70 or something. (laughs) Anyhow... But there's nothing to indicate he's an old man. It's just that God had given him by the Holy Spirit a specific revelation just for him that he would live to see the coming of the Messiah. And that's important. So this is the thing that he longed for. How long had he had this revelation from the Holy Spirit? We don't know. It could have been years, it could have been months, it could have been weeks. We don't know. And where Scripture's silent, it's important that we not speculate and create a whole theology out of the air. So here's a man, and the purpose of his life is this. I want to see the Lord Jesus come. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's your goal in life, whether you're really old like Joe Norwood, or whether you're really young, like Iona. That ought to be the goal of your life. I want to see Jesus come, and I want to see his power displayed one more time because our world surely needs an outpouring of the Spirit of God. So these things are important as we understand. Now let's look at what he says because he's full of the Spirit of God, And I just think about how Sam and Melissa would feel if a strange man came and took Iona out of their arms in church. Somebody they'd never seen before and begins to bless her. Be a little uneasy, right? Especially somebody you'd never seen before. But Mary and Joseph accept this man doing this. And listen to what he says. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, so now dismiss your servant in peace. He said, my life, the meaning of my life has been completed. That doesn't mean he wanted to die. It just means that his bucket list had finally been filled up. I've done what I want to do in life. So, Lord, whenever you want to take me, that's fine. You know, I don't want to live long. I only want to live until I've fulfilled God's purpose in my life. And that ought to be how we all look at life. Old age is not a blessing, let me assure you personally. I want to live as long as my life counts for God. And this is the case of Simeon. He wants to fulfill God's purpose in his life. And the purpose of his life was to be a witness 
that God's Messiah, the son of David, had come. And notice what else he says. He says in verse 30, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people. And then he says these words, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory, for glory to your people Israel. Now, you'll see a footnote there in the side margin at verse 32. Isaiah 42, 6. Why don't we turn back there for a moment? Isaiah 42, 6. Because Simeon, full of the Spirit of God, is alluding to something that's been prophesied. And this is what he says. And this whole context of chapter 42 is about the Messiah. You see there at at chapter 42, verse 1, page 1124, the servant of the Lord. And you can read all of that. and we, We don't need to go into that all today. But it's really a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of you, of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I'm the Lord. That's my name. I'll not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken a place, taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So this whole section is all about the coming of the Messiah. Holding your hand there, I'd like you to turn over about 20 chapters to chapter 60. Chapter 60. And look at what we see there on page 1155. And and here again, this is alluded to. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So here's a thought I want to plant with you. We three kings of Orient are. We're the kings. No, but they represent kings. In that world at that time, going back to Babylon, continuing on with Persia, you have the Magi. The Magi are a ruling class of people who understand the times because they observe astronomical phenomena and can interpret those and guide kings and those who are in authority. That's who the wise men were. They were Magi. They were, we get the word magician from that. They were dealing in what we would call occult arts like astrology, which is different from astronomy. Now, what I want you to see is that there is, in the coming of the Magi, an echo of what we read in Isaiah 60 and verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
And so what I want us to see then is in the coming of the Magi to visit the Lord Jesus, there is a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment of this, which is the conversion of all nations to Christ. And we're still waiting for that. The conversion of all nations to Christ. So we see in Jesus' birth and the coming of the wise men an echo of this prophecy of Isaiah that's partially fulfilled in their coming to visit the Lord Jesus, but it obviously doesn't exhaust it because the nations have got to be one to Christ. And you see, that's what Simeon's talking about. Turning back to Luke 2, he says in verse 31 about the salvation, Luke 2, 31, which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon is prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit that in the person of Jesus is the complete fulfillment of everything that God promised to Israel. Now hold your hand there and turn to the right to the book of Galatians. This is a very important truth. Galatians chapter 3. And this is what we read. And this is why it's important that we understand that it is Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now look here with you, if you would, with me at Galatians 3.16, page 1812. Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word seed can be understood singular or plural, the singular word. But St. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking the very word of God, gives us an infallible understanding of the meaning of Abraham's promise. Abraham has promised that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, referring to Jesus. Now, I want you to see something. I'm going to say it strangely. Isaac is the seed of Abraham because Isaac is in Christ. Jacob is the seed of Abraham because Jacob is in Christ. Judah is the seed of Abraham because he is in Christ. This is the key to understanding the whole of the Old Testament. For as many as may be the promises of God, 2 Corinthians uh, 2.11, um, no, uh, one twenty. Uh, as many as may be the promises of God, in him that is in the Lord Jesus, they are yea, and in him, amen. I always want to make sure that I'm giving uh, scripture references correctly. That's 2 Corinthians one twenty, And so through him the amen is spoken to the glory of God. And he says, for no matter how many promises God has made, there yes in Christ, and through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now this is a fundamental truth, because otherwise 
we'll end up racists. Who is the seed of Abraham? The Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ is a child of Abraham and an heir of the promises. And this is important, that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Simeon holds him in his arms, he is holding Israel. He is holding the entirety of the people of God as their representative, as their head, as the federal head of God's people. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And if we don't have that understanding, we end up with a very discombobulated view of the Old Testament. We have this for this person and this for that person. And when we read the Old Testament, we read it as a foreign book. Oh, this isn't for me. Well, listen, I want to tell you, dear ones, when you find a promise in the Bible, whether it's in Genesis or in the book of Psalms, you say, that's for me because I'm in Christ. And that's the critical thing because I'm in Christ. And so as Simeon holds this child, he's holding the Israel of God. He's holding the true seed of Abraham. He's holding the one person who guarantees the promises God gave to Abraham. The one person who, who holds the promises given to Isaac and to Jacob and so on down and to David. So when I read the Psalms, this is how I read them. I read a Psalm. And immediately I say, oh, wow, David wrote this. And uh, he didn't write them all, but he wrote a lot. Moses wrote the 90th. And uh, so I read it and I say, okay, this is what David experienced. And good things and bad things. And then I think, but David is in Christ. And therefore these promises are for me in Christ. And so I can claim them. I can claim them all. Every single promise that God has made, I can claim in Christ. And so we go back here and we see something else in Luke chapter 2. And this is striking. Now the child's father and mother, verse 33, Luke 2, 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about them. Now, did Luke forget what he wrote in the first chapter? That Jesus... Father was not Joseph, but that Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of God who took an ovum from her and caused it to be formed into a new, unique human being, taking the life that had come from Adam in the garden through Eve down through the generations and forming a unique human person in the womb of Mary without a human father being involved. No, he didn't forget that. He's simply using it in a conventional way. It's kind of like two of my grandchildren are adopted. And you know that I have more legal binding to them than I do to my natural grandchildren. When I stood there and I witnessed their adoption, do you know that adopting a child makes you more obligated to that child than even being a natural parent? You can't sever it. And so in a conventional way, Simeon is, 
is referring to the parents. And Luke, writing about it, says the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Do I have to always say when I meet people, this child is my adopted grandchild? Of course not. This is my grandchild. And I love my two adopted grandchilds every bit as much as I love my natural grandchildren. And so he, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Because they're seeing yet one more confirmation. Remember what the shepherds had seen. Remember what they'd come and said. Remember the revelation from the angel Gabriel to Mary herself. And also in a dream to Joseph. But for them, life is just one unfolding of a marvelous thing after another. But it isn't all sweetness and light. It isn't all a bed of roses. Listen to what he says. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. What's he saying? He's saying just because you have God's favor, just because you're the happiest of all women, because you have given birth to the Messiah doesn't mean your life is one of unending happiness and joy with no problems, no pain, no trouble. Indeed, notice what he says in verse 35, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What a terrible prophecy. What's he saying? He's he's foretelling the crucifixion of Christ. He's foretelling Mary standing at the foot of the cross with Mary Magdalene and with others and standing there and seeing her son tortured to death. Wow. Not just a quick death. Not what Roman citizens got. A quick beheading. And it's over. But the slow, agonizing brutal torture of her son and that's described here as a sword piercing her heart Simeon foretells the cross Simeon foretells the agony of Mary standing at the foot of the cross a sword will pierce your soul also wow but there's something else here And it's quite striking, I think, when he says this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. I think that's an interesting thing. And we could take this several ways. In a literal way, it means that many people who claim to be Jews would fall away and would not be part of the people of God at all afterwards. Think of some of those people. Think of the king of the Jews, Herod, who was basically a descendant of Esau, who did have Jewish blood. King Herod is cut off from the people of God. Or think of the high priest. If there were ever a a group of cutthroat religious opportunist it was the high priestly family that had sold their soul in order to get the percentage of the cut from the offerings at the temple and they were very much under the rule of Herod on the one hand and of the Roman procurator later on 
you know, they could remove priests and they could put priests in power. And so when you're there under somebody holding the strings, you're going to do what they want you to do. And you understand, of course, Caiaphas' prophecy uh, when he's worried because Jesus had literally raised Lazarus from the dead and everybody's talking about it. And they have a little meeting in the back room. Go to Bilderberg somewhere and uh, hotel and confer. And uh, they come up with a plan. We can't let this happen. What are we going to do? What are we going to do in the back room? It's expedient that one man die for the nation. Unless we all perish. They were afraid of the Romans coming in and removing their place. And so, without meaning to prophesy the atoning death of Jesus, Caiaphas actually prophesies the atoning death of Jesus. Let him die. We don't want to have the Romans coming and removing our place. So he prophesies of the atoning death of Jesus. They were a corrupt gang. And there were many others. You know, think about people today. What is wrong with what we called woke Christians. They've observed their parents and grandparents. They've observed the churches they were raised in. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying that the scandal of how Christians act has provoked this bizarre extreme that we have to deal with today of people who are now, quote, ex-Christians or say, well, I'm a Christian, but I hate the church. Why do people hate the church? People hate the church because they see that many people who profess to follow Jesus aren't really following Jesus at all. They're only following their own ambitions, their desires. And so you see here, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And what does that mean? It means that the, the low-down people, the poorest of the poor, the scum of the earth, the people who were nobodies but were following the Torah, who were true Jews, would rise. Look at the early church. The early church had some very fine people in it, but its early leadership was overwhelmingly from riffraff, poor people, common people, like Peter, a fisherman. So, Here's what you've got, the fall and the rising. But I want you to see another thing. And this is very pertinent. No one can become a child of God without falling and rising. What does that mean? The work of the Holy Spirit is first to humble us, to knock us off our high horse, to put us on our face before God, to have us like the publican, the tax collector in the temple, who doesn't lift up his face at all, but simply cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, that's a man that had a falling. And as a result of that fall, he rises and he becomes a true follower of Christ. Whereas the Pharisee goes into the temple and he says, I thank thee, God. I ain't like other folks. 
I'm a good man. And I do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm a righteous man. I keep the law. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything. And that man was not a believer. That man went home condemned. Whereas the crooked tax collector who was deeply remorseful and who was humiliated before men and before God when he's in the temple in the place of the presence of God he cast himself down and he's humbled. And then he rises. So there's that sense too. And that leads us to one last thought. And that's in verse 35 where he says, So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he speaks of a sword. And um, that takes us to the book of Hebrews for a moment where he tells us in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, that God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, and, and he says there, let's see where that is. Uh, no, I think I'm in the wrong chapter of Hebrews. Um, I'll have to look that up later, but I'll quote it. And in Hebrews, he says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder and dividing between soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a this, it, 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 and it exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart and then he says something else in Hebrews in that same passage he says so that nothing escapes it and it lays bare and the Greek word that's used there means this, in gladiatorial games, when one gladiator defeated another gladiator, he would hold his sword at the man's throat. And the man is laid bare, he has no weapon left, he's utterly defenseless, and the gladiator holds his sword at his throat. And that is the picture of what God's Word does. Do you want to know why some people hate certain kinds of preaching. Preaching that exposes people's sins. Preaching that humbles them. Preaching that knocks them off of their high horse. Preaching that makes them search their own hearts. That isn't popular. And preaching like that doesn't get a following. I remember listening to a preacher one day, and he went through a list of sins. And then he said, of course, I'm not talking about any of you here. And I thought to myself, I was a seminary student at the time. Why are you saying it? Why are you saying it? The purpose of the preacher is not so much to point out the sins of society. We do need to point those out. But it's to talk about each of us here, including yours truly. Because if I can't preach to myself, how can I preach to you? And so the Lord Jesus is going to have victory 
And we will pick this up next week as we look at the Magi. You say, wait a minute, Christmas season. Yeah, Epiphany was two days ago where we celebrate the coming of the wise men. But this happened 40 days after the birth of Christ. And so we'll probably continue it next week because I didn't get to finish it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us to take to heart the joyful message, the sorrowful message, the message that brings light in the midst of the darkness. And yet, because men love the darkness, because their deeds are evil and they don't want them exposed, Lord, help us. May this church always be a church that honors the Word of God in teaching it clearly and plainly and with conviction so that we go out of church feeling bad first, so that we can feel good as we trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for my own preaching, both this morning and as long as you see fit to let me preach. May my preaching always make people feel bad about themselves so that they may feel good about who they are in Christ. Thank you that one there is above all others, Wells deserves the name of friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and in death. Comfort and encourage us, we pray, for Jesus' sake, amen.